This is Culture A Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and this is a show where we'll deep dive on the good and the bad with Middle East HR and talent experts on their challenges, strategies, and success stories to inspire your own journey. Listen in and get ready to unlock potential and drive results with Culture A. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today on Culture A. I have a very, very interesting guest with me today. Russia joins me. She's the chief people officer at Alamar Foods. And Russia is, let me just give you this small, tiny little introduction because her, her background and experience is, is quite impressive. And I'm really excited to speak with her today. She's not only a, a senior, very experienced HR professional, she has over 16 years of experience across various sectors. She's someone who, who has a, a personal and professional stake in the Middle East. And that makes me very, very excited. Her career has focused on many things within the HR world. So, you know, engagement and culture, transformation, HR business partnering, training, leadership. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I will pause there for a second just to hand over the mic. Rasha, thank you so much for joining me today and being on Culture A. I'm very excited, as you can see. (laughs) Rasha, can you tell our listeners maybe just a little bit about yourself and then we'll jump into our conversation. Sure. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. I'm very excited to be with you today. And well, you you covered most of my bio. I'm I'm a Saudi national. I work between Dubai and Saudi, and I have a MENA role in my my current job. It's more of a regional role. So I am an HR generalist. I've always preferred it that way because I get bits and pieces of everything. So that's that's why. Thank you so much, Rasha Ridi, for for joining me again today. I'm sure everyone who's listening is very excited to hear your perspective and what your experience has been like, you know, throughout your career and and within the region itself. So let's jump right in, okay? So your your journey to becoming chief people and culture officer it's it's inspiring. Everyone has their own evolution of their career. So I'm interested to know, you know, maybe you could give our listeners like a little bit of background so they can understand how your career evolved? Sure. So I can say that I fell into HR by pure coincidence, but it was a nice coincidence. I think everyone says that, by the way. Nobody goes seeking HR and finds them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I started my career with customer service and with Sadat uh, payment systems. And then I worked at a bank. And then there was a post for a job on KPMG for a learning and development coordinator. And really intrigued me. So this is how I started my career in HR. I joined KPMG. I started with that. And then I moved into people advisory, which gave me more of a sense of being a consultant and and the various issues that industries have from an HR point of view. And that was really a, an eye-opener for me back then. And it really intrigued my interest in HR. And, and I loved being an HR generalist more because you could you could have a nice flavor from every bit and piece of every department. And from there on, my experience kicked off. Most of my experience is in financial services. I would say a big chunk of my career was with KPMG and EY. And I'm very thankful and grateful for my experience over there because I learned a lot about working for multinational, the regional exposure. My first encounter with diversity and ex- inclusive was with EY. And, and, and that was an, an amazing field to explore. So yeah, and I'm, I'm still in HR, <laughs> as you can see. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that coincidence that brought me to who I am today. I am, I am a people's person. 
And I think when you're, when you're into people and development and, and psychology and understanding all of that, human resources as a, as a career falls uh, perfectly into that. Thank you so much, Rasha. Yeah, thank you for, for that background. Actually, something you said about consulting, how it gives you that perspective because you work with so many different clients and everyone has similar, let's say, pain points or struggles. There are commonalities, you know, and then the approach differs depending on the, or on the organization. And that's really something that hits home with me because this is what the podcast was born as, as an idea to discuss these things. So it's nice that you had that perspective, you know, and it, taking that knowledge and Applying it into, you know, going into a client organization must have been really kind of great for your learnings. You touched on diversity and inclusion. Okay. So I want to, I want to jump into that. They're obviously very critical components of a workplace, a modern workplace. And everyone is, it's like a hot topic, right? For everybody, you hear the words, they're buzzwords, and everyone is trying to work towards building a diverse and inclusive organization. So how would you say you ensure to kind of keep your finger on the pulse to make sure that you know what other organizations are doing in this space? I think I would like to start by saying that people think diversity is about gender. And then you should have like more female or or have a nice mix between males and females. And diversity is much bigger than that. Diversity. So there are like four types of diversity, I would say, which is internal diversity, which is your, your gender, your nationality. Those things are embedded in who you are. So that's one part of diversity, as well as external diversity, which is your attributes and all the things that happen to you that identify you as a, as a person. Then you have organizational diversity, which is your work experience, your background, your knowledge. And then you have the worldview diversity, and that is your, and your exposure to the world and what that brought into you as a person. So all of these are, are taken into account when it comes to diversity. I do believe from my, my previous experiences that Diversity is very important for many things. It's not just to tick a box. It is about ensuring, adding a new value to the team, new ideas, uh, new perspectives. Sometimes diversity in generation now is becoming also something that's very noticeable, especially that the young generation are entering the, the workforce. So you have very different generations and it's nice to see the young, new, trendy thinking opposite old school because they need each other to to have a nice complete comprehensive mindset so diversity of thought right diversity of thought yeah okay diversity of thought and one thing that i read once that i thought was really nice talking about different diversity and inclusion is that diversity is asking uh, as having everyone inviting everyone to the party but inclusion is asking everyone to dance so being diverse is not enough Because with all these different backgrounds and different mentalities and different generations, you need to actually give them a chance to be included in whether decision making, whether a future planning, whether their own career path. So, so diversity and inclusion, they come together hand in hand to actually have the most impact. Because just being diverse, I think, is not very difficult. It's the inclusiveness is, is where companies shine, I think. That's right. No, that's completely uh, on point. Do you think looking back, like, would you say there are pivotal moments that stand out to you that you feel maybe shaped your focus on diversity and and HR transformation? 
Is there something that stands out? As I mentioned, when I was with EY, I was introduced to diversity. And then it, it gave me like a, a magnifying lens to see the, the power and effect of that. So I, I think when I was part of the team, just having different nationalities being separated across different regions and different countries. And one thing that I think is important is that when you have a very diverse team, you do need some tools as an organization to be able to navigate your way through this diversity because you can't say this company's culture is the culture, for example, of country X, because this company actually have many different nationalities and backgrounds and religions and social backgrounds. So, so you need to have tools as well to know how to, to make your way through this, like intercultural trainings, understanding different backgrounds, how to work with each other. Because if you don't have that mindset or that flexibility, I think this diversity actually could could actually stab you back as an organization because you don't know how to deal with it. So, so I do ask companies who are very diverse to actually invest in these tools to help out help the people understand each other's cultures. Because one thing that's very acceptable in one culture can be extremely offensive in another culture. And and you you need you need that balance to to be culturally aware of what's what's okay, what's not, and and to actually to work better together. Otherwise, you could create some friction. I would say just due to misunderstanding, nothing more. I think you make a really good point, and actually, I think I might I'm gonna need to come back. We're gonna need to do another episode. Is what I'm trying to say because diversity and inclusion is such a big topic. I really want to dive deep into it, but. It's going to take us so far away from some of the other things we have lined up for today. But one point that you made, and I think that some companies are not aware of, is there isn't this uh, one size fits all when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Even if they have, you know, policies and structure, you know, in place to address these kind of pillars, it doesn't necessarily work, for example. So you can have an organization based in the UAE where it's incredibly diverse as a demographic, and you can have that same organization present in Egypt where the diversity or the demographic is skewed towards nationals, right? It's not an expat population. So the, the policies you have in place may not necessarily, you know, resonate. Maybe they translate, but it doesn't resonate, right? To Depending on where you're based. So huge topic. Yeah, and I was thinking about this today when I was just before our session, like in some countries, as you said, the labor laws will, will have you have uh, a specific percentage of nationalization is really a melting pot and not every country operates the same way. But you do have diversity in the way of thinking, of bringing regions. So not everyone in Egypt will be uh, will be the same. Not everyone in Saudi will be the same. So some people might say, okay, but in my country, we need to have 90% nationalism. Yeah, but there is a lot of diversity in that as well. It's, it's not just the nationality. It is many, many things. True, 100%. Let's focus on you for a minute because here you are establishing your career, a female leader, a Saudi national, regional experience. You've built, you have this very nice portfolio. Let's put it that way, okay? So as a female leader, okay, you're really, you're a role model for for a lot of aspiring women who want to be in leadership positions or who are and 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 want to to maintain and excel in them. Can you share maybe some insights into some of the unique challenges or opportunities that you've encountered on your journey and how you kind of work to pave that way for others? Well, when I started my career, I was the conditions for women were starting to change and 
and women were more included into private sector and, and not just the typical sectors that were before. And I'm very grateful that, that that happened during my, during the start of my career. I've had support from the fam- my family, from the society, even from all the organizations I've worked for. And now this has, the evolution of this has changed tremendously. Like, I'm very happy for all young women who are starting their careers now because really there's nothing to stop them joining anything. So they can be a part of any organization, any department. You can see more women in engineering or in many niche fields that were before mostly dominated by, by men. So, so I'm, I mean, if you believe in yourself and you have the right tools and you invest actually in, in getting the right skills and education, I believe that you can be anything you want. And this education and skills is a continuous journey. It's not just the university. It's about taking courses. It's about, and, and working itself is a huge, like in some organizations, you really feel like it's a degree because you really learn so much. So, so I, I do encourage young women at the beginning of their careers to, to really think about what they want and and find the organizations that can help them reach where they want to reach. I love that. Continuous learning is a huge one. It's easy to fall into that trap where you're like, I, I don't have the time. Oh, yeah. I have, you know, I have the family, I have the work. I have the... It's very easy to follow it, fall into it. But, you know, I, I myself, like, you know, my husband is like a serial learner. This is the best way for me to put it. And he's always, you know, advocating for this. So you're hundred percent correct. And I think it's important to put out there. You don't just necessarily need to further your education in an area that you are working in. Further your education in something outside of what you know, like really learn something new because you can apply it right to, to what you're doing. That's a really, really good tip, actually. You said something that learning doesn't have to be in the same field you're working you could be an engineer, but be interested in psychology or in culture or, or, or whatever. And I think don't hold yourself back from learning that or doing it, saying that it will not benefit me in my job, because I think that's where you can get also some work-life balance. So if you're passionate about some field, go ahead and, and learn it. Even if it will not add much to your career, it will add to you as a person. That's right. You know, I was speaking to another HR professional on the podcast. We were talking about some of the questions that are brought up in the interview process. And one of the questions that this organization uses is, you know, what have you learned outside of your your field of expertise lately? And you can imagine asking that question to, to people who have just been kind of rolling along, you know, doing the same thing day in, day out. They're excelling in their careers. They're putting their head down. They're really driving results, but they're not they're not dedicating time to that. And imagine you're asked that question as part of your interview. It could really stump you, you know? So anyway, okay, so I digress. Okay, so that's, that's fantastic. Let's talk about something that has been a focus area um, along with many others in, in your career and something that you pay much attention to through your organization, employee well-being, okay? And this is something that has had obviously significant attention. I would say probably more recently in the last two, three years, I think COVID like pushed us into something that we weren't expecting. And now the whole dynamic has changed. We'll get into that a little bit later, but let's talk about employee well-being. Okay. So what advice would you give to other HR leaders that are listening to ensure that employee wellness remains an ongoing discussion topic and actually a priority in an organization? Like, How do they have that conversation and keep it going to make sure that they're tweaking? To go back to the point you just mentioned that COVID really put one being on the table, I think it's because after the pandemic, a lot of mental health issues came to the surface and going back to work, a lot of people who were stressed at their jobs 
had more difficulty and challenge going back to that. And well-being is a very, very important topic, whether it's in in an organization or in your personal life. And it's not just a hot topic. It's a very real and and important topic. And I think it's very important that we should shed some light on, on that. I think if you have some focus on well-being in your organization, then you're more likely to have happier employees and better results. And I think HR in general has a strong role to implement the well-being agenda in in organizations. Well-being is not just about creating events or day outs or having some food trucks coming to the company. That's nice. It's nice. It creates a, a sense of bond between the employees. But it is it is much bigger than that. It's about health. It's about, uh, in some organizations, about physical safety. It's about mental health, stress management, training managers and leaders to have difficult conversations, how they can address conflict. You can see now in many countries, actually, that medical insurers are mandated to add to their policy mental health benefits, psychiatry, psychology. So the, the health factor of it is, is very big. Another part of, of well-being, I would, I would say, is having a good working environment, having a comfortable workspace. I am a person who really believes in having sunlight inside the office. If you can, if your space allows you or your business allows you, uh, adding some plants. Some people might think that these are small things that don't, they don't make a big difference, but, but they do. When you sit in an office for eight or nine hours, these small things really add, add to your morale, having a nice canteen area with like some fruit and, and some drinks. Just these small things, they really make a difference. I think also part of that is to have a strong, good employee engagement survey, because through that, you can actually listen to your people and understand what are you doing well? What do you need to focus on? I think that's extremely important. And with the employee engagement surveys, I think a strong communication campaign should go with it, that this is anonymous, which you should have a whistleblowing policy, anti-retaliation, that you can say whatever you want. You will not get in trouble. From my experience, organizations who don't have experience with these kinds of surveys, with the first survey, you'll find very high results because people will be a bit reluctant to, to be honest. But with time, so one engagement survey is not enough. You need to have, it, it needs to be a continuous thing. And then with time, people will feel more comfortable to, to speak up. And, and that's really, that really helps organization address what they need to focus on. Part of it is as well as having like the, the normal day-to-day HR initiatives like performance management, feedback, career paths. That way the employee will feel like they know where they're going and people would like to know where they're going, what's next for them. So these are some some examples. In some organizations I worked, we had like a breakfast with CEO, with a CEO, like they would pick a high performer and then they would have like breakfast where they would not talk about work. They would just just be a normal, casual conversation. And imagine like a, a young student who just graduated and just joined. To them, that's something that is very powerful. So these small things, they really, they really make a, a huge difference. Non-financial recognition as well. I mean, the list is long and I can go on and on. But I'm no, just but you, you make a very valid point because when it comes to employee well-being, and this is something that I wanted to discuss a little bit further, there isn't one way of measuring this. Okay. Like every, everything else that you look at, you can, you can apply metrics to it. You can look at how you're doing. You can, you can 
view trends. You can see if you're trending up or trending down. It's very data driven. And with employee well-being, it's not just one thing that you you measure, right? So so I've asked the question to other people and I was going to ask you, but you've, you've already gone through it. It's how do you measure success yeah. when it comes to employee well-being? And I, you've you've you mentioned something that is for me critical. And I've seen this implemented because I I came from a global organization. Uh, A lot of companies don't have this implemented, but something as small as, you know, you have your engagement survey as like a manager satisfaction survey for me is key because you always hear there's like teething issues with managers sometimes, uh, teething issues sometimes there are more than that. And um, there isn't, the employee doesn't have a voice to to really have someone as, as a sounding board and, and they shy away from coming to HR, regardless of how welcoming we might make it. They, they always shy away from having that conversation. So having something in place like manager satisfaction where they see that there's no repercussions to the feedback that they're providing is really, really key. And I've seen that that really helps with employee morale as well and their well-being and so on. So, so yes, I, I hear you completely. You touched on many, many things that resonate. It can though be very difficult. Like uh, there's so many organizations that really uh, are very high focus on high performance. And when you look at certain markets in the Middle East, it's like a sink or swim type of culture almost for organizations. Very hard to, to have a successful business here. Even global conglomerates sometimes come into the market and it's very difficult to put up with or to understand the regional nuances of each of the countries. It's not like the Middle East operates in X way. It's every country within the Middle East is different. So sometimes a culture, a company culture is focus on driving results and that can be measured through KPIs. And then there's the employee wellness and well-being factor. And that's a very hard juggling act to maintain when you're pushing results. So this is maybe a little bit off what we had planned to discuss, but you know, you're heading the organization. How do you in that leadership position make sure that there is that balance, that it doesn't go one way or the other that doesn't lead towards only results and how can we get the business to scale and the growth and the demand and the volumes and really that people are the priority. I think with employee well-being and and creating an attractive working environment, it's not just the role of human resources. It is the role of every department and every manager and, and, uh, and the leadership as well. So that, however, human resources drive that. So they... They make sure that the head of departments, the executive leaders, they're all on the same page when it comes to that, creating these initiatives through these employee engagement surveys. So reading and analyzing the results of that, which is a big job, by the way, to actually read between the lines. Sometimes it's very helpful to have focus groups with the specific people to understand more. Why is this not working or what do they want more of? So... It, it is challenging. It's not easy. It's very easy to say, oh, well-being, well-being, we, we are, we, but, but it's not, it's not just something that you put. It's just, it's not something concrete. It is a lot of work in the background. So, so it's a collaborative effort between human resources and leadership. And you can measure where you are on that. Like I would say, ideally, it should be twice a year where you do your engagement survey, one could be one big one and another one could just be to to like a like a refresher or like a reminder of what are the things that have been we've been working on. I think it's also very important to highlight to the people what are the things that you actually worked on since your last survey. Like do a small video, do a communication. We listened, you men you raised one, two, three, four. We worked on one, two, three, four, so that people will say, oh, you know what? 
actually something was done. Because sometimes, I don't want to overgeneralize, people would say, oh yeah, these are just useless. We, we submitted our results, nothing changed. But no, some things changed. And I think it's very important as well for the employees to understand some changes take a very long time. Some, there are quick wins for sure. And, and it's good to focus on the quick wins to actually show that you are doing something about it. But there are long-term initiatives that sometimes takes years. And so it's, it's a bit tough to balance between both, but you need to show your people that you're listening to them. And I think you do that with the quick communication. Yeah. And then you tell them that this is a, a longer initiative. This is our plan. Communication is vital. And it's very important. And I really, really believe when the organization has strong communication, whether formal, informal communication, having like coffee talks, where it's just casual and talking about things, this increases the employee's morale significantly. Whereas when you have less communication, even though you could be working extremely hard, achieving great results, but the communication is broken, you will see the effect. You, you will definitely see the effect. And a big, big, big part of well-being is the communication between management and the teams. It's also between peers communication because you need to ensure that peers are actually getting along together and they don't have to be best friends, but they need, they need to be comfortable to work together every day. We spend a lot of hours in the office. And if you don't have that peer satisfaction as well, and that goes into the diversity, it goes into the cultural training and and helping your employees understand each other better through these. We had very strong trainings on that when I was with EY, and I think that was brilliant, especially with intercultural training. So all of that, all it's like it's it's a big, it has a lot of pieces. It's not just one thing. It's not, it's yeah. many things. And it depends massively on the leadership. hundred percent. And also let's be very candid. I'm just going to be very real when it comes to this. There's a shift. Everyone can see it in not only employee expectation, but how they operate is very different. Like the individuals that are within the workforce now, they want things done faster. They want to know what's happening. Information is at their fingertips or at a click of a button whenever they need it. So not having that transparency built into your people organization is going to kill your people organization because they need to know. They just want to know, right? So tell them, <laughs> like, so communicate, be transparent. It, it works wonders and it really makes an impact on how engaged people are in an organization because they feel they're part of it, right? When they know what's going on. So, okay, real talk over. I <laughs> just thought I'll throw that out there. But you know, Sarah, I think one big thing of the diversity and cultural differences is the generational difference, Okay. And that's the topic I'm very passionate about because I, I always say, I feel like I'm closer to my grandmother when it comes to interest and generational similarities than I am with people who are like 15 years younger than me. Although there's much more between me and my grandmother, but, but it's just all these new technology and all these new trends and everything is at the click of a button and Sometimes for an older generation, they struggle with the young people who come in because they're like, I, I, I don't want to speak negatively about any of the generation because each, each generation has their own value that they can add. Every, every generation, I believe that. But it's about how to build that bridge between the generations. The young people will come with so much fire in them and so much 
aspiration and maybe they will lack the patience or the long vision or or just the leadership they don't they, they they're still young but but then the older people are maybe set in in their own ways and they want things to be structured and it it can if the if that bridge is built it can create a lot of great achievements but it's not easy to build that bridge i see sometimes my frustration with different generations and and i'm very aware of it and and i can only imagine how it must feel for young people who come and work with people who are 20 years older than them from a completely different mindset it's not easy. It's not easy. And you're and saying I more... You should, I think you should have an episode on that. Look, it's a it's a very good point. And it's a huge topic to discuss because you are also seeing a lot of young, like a, a shift to a younger leadership team. And with that, you have employees who have 15, 20, you know, 30 years experience who are reporting into someone who is from a different generation, who's got much less years of experience. I know that that always kind of was the case, you know, it always existed, but now with technology, with AI, with automation, with all of this, in in addition to the age gap and the young leadership style, it's really causes, you know, you're right. Building that bridge, I think is very tough. It's very, very tough. So for anyone out there who's listening, who mastered it, ping us. <laughs> we want to learn more from you. Okay. Let's talk about AI and automation, all of that. There's a major shift, right? You're seeing it. It's happening as we speak. There's more and more tools. Some of these tools that have come up are, are incredible. I mean, I, I can't, we can talk about ChatGPT, but I feel like ChatGPT is now old and there's 4,000 <laughs> other tools that came up since that every single day I, I have somebody in the family that's introducing me to another tool or sending me another link. And I'm like, I can't keep up anymore. There's just so much that these tools can do for me. Anyway, let's talk about how that has an influence on HR transformation, because this is, you know, you've had extensive experience with it. You you understand it. And many organizations have to go through this shift now because of what's being demanded from a tool automation AI perspective. So so let's talk about this. What what would you say maybe are the main pillars that need to be assessed when you're looking at HR transformation, keeping in mind all of these tools and AI and everything? I, I can be overwhelmed as well with AI. <laughs> and, and I am from that generation who is not really up to date with all the technologies. I mean, I'm a bit tech savvy, but not that much. So at one point I, I do get overwhelmed with everything that's happening. I mean, for me, I'm still exploring chat GPT. So I don't know what came even after that. And, and that's it. That's a skill that young, the young generation has is that they're up to date. And this is where we should leverage on their ability to process all these new technologies. I do think that AI will definitely change the job market in general. For some roles, definitely. But I still think that with human resources, the human element will always be there. Well, I don't know. Well, I don't know a lot and what will happen in 10 years. But at least for now, I think the human element will still be, be important. And so transformation is not for every organization. This is my, my opinion. Some companies are already mature and they have a, a, a good policy and structure working for them. So they don't really need to transform. Maybe they just need to do some few change management between here and there, but not a massive transformation. So I believe that transformation is when you have old school HR, for example, where it's more admin, more personnel, more just purely administrative, you, they don't have the strategic part of HR. And, and I do believe that more and more organizations now, especially smaller ones and local ones, not multinational ones, they are 
realizing that, oh, hold on, you know, it's not just about hiring and contracts and medical insurance. There's, there's culture, there's diversity, there's performance management, there's development, there's rewards and benefits. It's, it's much bigger. So, so these organ, organi- these organizations are realizing that they need to, for them to succeed, to grow, they need to invest in their human capital by doing a natural from transformation and introducing these elements if they don't already have them. So this is what I think. You're completely right. I think, you know, I've spoken to a couple of people. I hear, I hear HR transformation used as a, like, how can I put this? It's like a buzzword or like a keyword. Like I, you hear it a lot, but there's so much work behind it. Obviously it's a transformation, <laughs> you know, you have to kind of look very much. You have to deep dive into what's working, what's not working, you know, what can you do better? What do you need to evolve? Even if it's working, you know, what do you need to push further on? What do you need to implement? You know, all of this stuff is so, but you you hear it a lot. And to, to see someone turn around and say, look, it's not for everyone. Some people are mature. You've got it. You 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 have it. You have it. You know, it's working for you. So don't change anything. It's, it's not something you hear all the time. Do you think it's for everyone? I, do, I think you make a good point. I think there's organizations, obviously, that need to transform. I think there's a lot of a lot of companies within the Middle East that are, let's say they they don't, what's the words I'm looking at? They don't benefit from the value that HR can bring. They are operating as more as like HR operations, as you said, or administration. They're lacking all of that strategic culture, et cetera. And because of that, they I think there's a, there's a ceiling that they're going to reach when it comes to how they run from an employee perspective, right? Uh, organizations can scale, but sometimes... They see high turnover. They see a lot of, you know, attrition, things like this, um, because they don't invest in all of these other key things. So I think you're right. It's maybe not for everyone. I do think that it's something that needs to be consistently challenged. Like, should we transform? Like, I, I think that question should always be asked. Should we do something different? You know, yeah. what is working that needs to be working better? So, so that conversation for me is is an important one to continue to to have, regardless of the maturity of the organization. I think you know, and it's I- something that you said earlier. Take the feedback that you've received, do something about it. You know, don't take the feedback and build a long-term strategy and forget about the quick wins that you can implement because people want to see turnaround fast. But yeah, I mean, I pretty much I I am aligned Dick, with, with with what you're thinking. Okay, let's jump in because I I I want to to make sure that we kind of push this this last uh, subject. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. We, we discussed very briefly COVID earlier. We know that it, it really forced us, forced everybody to adapt, okay, to, to a different way of working. And then they had to adapt really quickly or they would fail, right? And we saw so many organizations fail in that space. When dealing with the challenges of remote work, okay, and changing work dynamics, how would you say that you personally have adjusted your leadership style to support and to guide your teams effectively? in this type of work environment? I think I'm one of the, of the lucky ones who experienced work flexibility before COVID. And I was one who strongly believed in it. And I have to say not every organization I worked for felt the same way about it, but it is something that I believe that when you want your employees to to grow and, and be happy and, and caring about their well-being, it's for you to be flexible with them. And I believe as well, when you're flexible with your employees, they will be flexible with you as well. It's like a two road kind of thing. So if some, like if, if your employee would like to take a leave and then work a, uh, work for a week remotely, 
I don't see why not. I, I've always believed in it. So I'm not one of, the, of, of those people who like, oh, wow, this is something we can do. I, I have been doing it like maybe seven or eight years before the pandemic. And I, I personally saw the results on myself and on my teams as well. It just creates this, this bond of trust and, and empowerment and, and enablement. With that being said, of course, like I do encourage people not to abuse it. Some people might abuse it, but, but I mean, you, again, you can't, you can't say everyone will abuse it, but everyone will, will work greatly with it. I think it's important to command to have like a framework for it sometimes, especially in, in organizations that are not used to it. But I, I do believe that now in this day and age, it's very important to have this, this flexible, they call it new ways of working. I think, I think it's very important. It's, it's really important without having the employee feeling guilty that they want to work from home today or that they actually want to stay one week longer in their hometown and work from there. I think it's actually should be actually encouraged and, and, and you should push your employees to do it. Some organizations are actually pushing their people to only work three days a week from the office. They have to work two days remotely for many reasons. Maybe space is one of them. Maybe this flexibility part of it. But, but I think this is where we're heading. I think this is the new ways of working. And, and I do encourage people who are still holding on to the old ways of working to, to have an open mind and, and actually allow this wave to come in their, their organizations. I agree with you. I'm with you. Okay. This is a topic that I've actually discussed personally and publicly because I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate of flexible working. I'm a big advocate of work from anywhere. Okay. Because I think it's important that if you have this policy, you build out, as you said, a framework, something that enables you to track productivity and deliverables so that you, you can see that your, your employees are, are, are generating what they need to generate. And in exchange for that, like you said, it builds trust, such trust, such strong trust. Okay. Trust and ownership, like accountability from your employees and, and ownership for them to manage their deliverables and to build that, that connection with people and collaborate in ways that you, you didn't know you could. You have to kind of be, you know, you have to be creative about the way that you're collaborating. So a lot of people see it as like a hindrance on collaboration. Some, some, some organizations, as you said, they are not used to working in this way. They have a more traditional way of working. So, and they feel that the traditional way of working worked. So why change it? But employees, job seekers, you know, even passive talents, strong passive talents are demanding it. And it's something that I, I advocate a lot. I think it's also though that I had exposure to it before the pandemic as well. So, so I understand the value of it. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to me. Thank you for sharing your perspective, your insights, your learnings with everyone that's listening. It's very beneficial. I appreciate your time. So thank you very much again. Thank you, Sarah. I think this is a great initiative and I look forward to, to watching your next episodes. Thank you. Thank you so much. For those of you who are listening, please like, subscribe to the channels. Give us your feedback. We want to hear from you. If you have questions for myself or Russia, as usual, feel free to, to send them through. We'd be happy to, to answer and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you so much, everybody.